This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, quick souring process, fruit additions, and more in beer with uh, Brett Coleman-Baker, Chief of Brewing Operations for Urban Artifact in Cincinnati, Ohio. Welcome to the podcast, Brett. Hey, hey, hey. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. You, uh, you're one of the largest sour producing or sour only focused breweries, um, in the United States, maybe even the world, um, brewing around what, 8,000 ish barrels. Maybe it's a little bit more now of, uh, uh, all sour beer of some sort. We finished just under 9,000 okay. this year. Uh, we'll be, we, we just bought a bunch of tanks that are getting installed next week. Uh, that'll push us just over 15 next year. And, um, I, you know, we'll see what happens after that. That is a lot of sour beer. Uh, anyway, can't wait to dig into you on, on varying processes, varying approaches to these uh, quicker process sour beers. You also make longer you know, uh, process sour beer too. Yes. Before we get into that, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, like Russian River and Kasi, Jack Zabby, Samuel Adams, and a bunch more brewers you've heard on this very podcast, all trust GND to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, haze for days in your IPAs. Carry Biohaze from BSG adds that perfect, stable, cloudy appearance for your hazy recipe. Made with all natural materials, Biohaze is a free-flowing microgranular powder that binds with protein molecules in beer that form polyphenol protein complexes to produce a cloudy haze. This unique product can be added to final beer to give your beer that famous haze. Find out more about Biohaze at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So Brett, let's talk a little bit about your uh, brewing background. Uh, how did you uh, how did you get to where you are now with Urban Artifact? What does that uh, arc of your brewing history look like? Sure. So uh, got a degree in chemical engineering from a higher university. Uh, started a brew club while I was there, a homebrew club. And we basically brewed every weekend. And then anybody in the club which could just come over to our off-campus housing. Uh, and we'd learn to brew together. Uh, so that kind of set the wheels in motion, so to speak. After school, got a job with Cargill. Uh, while I was working on getting my diploma from the Institute of Brewing and Distilling in Brewing Science. And on the weekends, I was working at a distillery, Albany Distilling Company up in Albany, New York. From there, I moved to Kansas City with my wife while she was in school. And I worked at a winery. Uh, and then from there, started hiking the Appalachian Trail. And while I was on the Appalachian Trail with my wife, actually, actually girlfriend at the time, um, this piece of property came up for sale and there was a partnership opportunity for someone who wanted to open a brewery, but they didn't have any of the brewing background. And I had the brewing background and didn't have much of the architectural or taproom inclinations, which is what he wanted to do. So I was in between stops on the Appalachian Trail, uh, got this notification from a buddy like, hey, you need to check this out. So... I got into hold of another person, said, hey, could you look into this for me? I'm going back to in the woods for like four days. I'll talk to you then. 
get out of the woods uh, in Dartmouth. And he's like, man, you got to get back right now. This is happening. So I flew back two weeks later. We signed a big business loan. And uh, my actually first ever professional brewing job is is this one. Um, so uh, it, it worked out. I wouldn't recommend it for everybody because, you know, there was a lot of dump beer and a lot of mistakes uh, initially. But we I think we're making the products that we're making which is different than what most people are doing largely because I wasn't stuck in any tradition or dogma from another brewery. And uh, so for your very, for your first professional brewing job, you decided to jump right into the deep end and, and just focus solely on sour beer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while I was homebrewing, um, I mean, what kind of business planning, you know, I mean, goes, <laughs> you're thinking like, we're going to go take this giant risk, start up this brewery and we're just going to make sour beer. Yeah. So the business plan was fun because it was all based on a hunch of going to homebrew, uh, homebrew events and different beer events, you know, 10 years ago and just seeing like, Oh man, these homebrewers, they're getting into sours and this is going to be big. And I know people are going to want sour beer. And I know that people don't like funk on the whole. So to me, the opportunity was, can I make a clean sour and can I exploit this market opportunity? And so like you can't judge any numbers based off that. So at that point in time, you just got to frame it like it's an IPA brewery. And then you go to your investors and you frame all of this up and then you kind of drop the bomb on it. I'm like, yeah, it's going to be only sours. And they all look at you like, oh, you're psychotic. Like that will never work. <laughs> Sour beer sucks. Uh, and uh, you kind of just got to uh, charm and weasel your way in to getting buy-in. And then from there, um, you know, things kind of took off for us. Uh, I don't know if that answered your question directly, but that's that's kind of how it worked for us. Well, it's uh, it's certainly uh, a ballsy move to to go that route. And uh, you know, having said that, there's something to be said for um, focus and intention. And if you yes. know that's what you're going to do, then you have to be good at it. And if you're not good at that core thing, um, then none of it's going to ever work. Well, so uh, yeah, the, I I'm so happy you said that because that's something I harp on with anybody who comes to us and asks about like a new brewery opening up or like oh, we don't really know what our thing is. Like, you know, do you have any advice or whatever? And man, get rich in your niche. That's it. You, you hit the nail on the head. Have a thing, do it well, and become known for that thing. To me, the era of the generalist is dead and even more so accelerated by COVID. And, and you look at in the past too, you look at these biggest breweries in the world and the longest lasting ones, Weinstefaner, what are they known for? One thing, Guinness, one thing. Anheuser-Busch, before they turned into the global corp that they are, it was one thing. It's, it, man, I, I'm so passionate and it gets so riled up that more breweries don't open up and just have that one thing because it, it, it works. Even in, even in local markets, you know, that uh, getting, especially now in more populous areas where there are multiple breweries, you know, uh, at least having each brewery be a specialist and be known for one thing. Like there's, there's something to be said for that. And I, you know, I think if, um, you know, if you look back at the breweries that we talk to on this podcast, generally speaking, they're known for a thing, you know, sometimes it's a couple of things. Um, anyway, that's a whole nother. <laughs> so, so you set out to, you know, follow this path of making sour beer and you know that you want to make some quote unquote clean sour beers on the less funky side, um, you know, and kind of produce that. I mean, and certainly looking at that acidity is not something that's alien to, you know, American palates, no. um, you know, from kids candy to, um, 
you know, uh, to wine and, uh, you know, I mean, these, even in soft drinks that we drink every day, there's tremendous amounts of acids. Um, and so our palates are familiar with those and, uh, you know, and it becomes a common thing. Sour beer has this weirdly polarizing kind of, um, reputation for some reason, um, as it might, you know, thinking that it's weird when, you know, in, in reality, it's not that weird compared to all this other uh, stuff. Um, but, but talk to me a little bit about formulating that vision for how you're going to translate sour beer uh, out there for a broader audience. So for us, it's about flavor. So I think that's where the disconnect is. And with few exceptions, especially around candy, you don't advertise things as sour and they just are. Soda is acidic. Fruits are acidic by their nature. Like, yeah, sour candy is pushing as sour. But uh, for us, the wider audience, it was a matter of trying to purposely use more tart verbiage versus sour and pushing the fruit flavors. Uh, I love non-fruited sour beers, like a good sour wit, like Whittaker's sour wit. Oh, my God, that's so good. But what we've found um, is it's a lot harder to relate to the consumer palate. So by using fruit and folding in the sour beer as a balancing aspect of that, you're much able, you're much better able to then broadcast your flavor through your brand, like Urban Artifact, Midwest Fruit Tart, Blackberry, and the, almost the, the fanciful name almost becomes secondary uh, in that instance. So that's kind of where we took it. Uh, after the first year of trying to push more of the, the process and stuff, we've kind of slowly, you know, Occam razored our way into you push balance and tart and the fruit flavor, and then the rest falls into place. From a, a process standpoint, um, where, how did you uh, start? Um, clearly, if you're looking for low funk, then you're looking at lactic souring processes, you know, but you're also coming at it from a production standpoint and want to produce a decent amount of this. Um, you know, and souring beer certainly takes time, ties up kettle. Um, you know, if you start with a traditional kind of brew system, then, you know, that certainly is going to limit the amount of beer that you can brew. You need to have a process that can kind of work through the equipment that you have in order to accomplish this. Talk to me a little bit about how you designed a brew house in order to, you know, knowing that this was going to be your focus. Yeah. So there's a couple things with that. Um, so the first thing is is that uh, the kettle souring on its on its base is not a great biological uh, process uh, design. So it's not like you're putting it in a system that's not meant to be a closed. You say system. this is a chemical engineer uh, <laughs> who has some yes. experience in that kind of realm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So like uh, you know, it's not it's not built for that. So why would you treat that tank as that? You need a separate vessel. Well, the nice thing with breweries is you have a separate vessel made for fermentation, you know? So like, uh, our whole thing was, why don't we use it? Why don't we use a fermenter to sour in with a pure culture of lactobacillus? So there's a couple things that are wrong with the boil kettle. It's exposed to oxygen. It can heat, but it can't cool. Uh, and if it heats, you know, I don't know what your set points are for your system, but that could be a problem. And generally people seem to think it's okay for some reason when you're doing uh, pre-boil sour or quick sour to just throw in like good belly or grain or just kind of let it start souring on its own. Where if you're trying to make a quick, clean beer, like a, a you know, golden ale or something, you don't just toss in baker's yeast or random yeast. So why would you do that 
for lactobacillus. You know the process that sours. And it, it, it can be a singular culture. It can be a set lactobacillus strain or species that you know works well under the conditions you want. So from there, it was a matter of us finding a lactobacillus strain that worked for the conditions we wanted. And for that, it was in a fermenter, without oxygen, without light, and at 80 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a lot cooler than a lot of people do this at. And I found that by us fermenting cooler, souring cooler, it creates a cleaner, less potential for like Parmesan or cheesy or just estriol flavors that we don't want in the beer. And it, it allows us then to consistently hit at a slower rate the exact pH and titratable acidities we want. The other hang-up brewers tend to have with what, that. Uh, what, what, lactic, uh, what lactobacillus strain did you end up on for that? Uh, so we actually, uh, what we did is we caught a bunch of wild cultures around our property, isolated the lactobacillus, and then did trials based on uh, the isolated cultures that we have to figure out which one operated best under the conditions we wanted it to work at. And then once we nailed that down, we shipped it over to Omega Yeast, and then they banked it for us. Uh, so we have, a, we have our own culture. Um, but if anyone wants to use it, just reach out to Omega Yeast and just ask for Urban Artifacts Lactobacillus, and, and you're more than welcome. I, there's no, I told them anybody who asks can use it, so that's fine. Well, you did it the easy uh, way. And then the, the last thing would be, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you do the work and then you get to share it with others and it's kind of yeah. nice. And uh, what's the qualms? You, you can't own a, bio, a, a biological thing, you know, much to like Monsanto's uh, uh, disparagement or whatever, but <laughs> sure, you know, sure. Fuck them. Tell me how you really feel, Brett. <laughs> no, that's cool. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at, uh, I mean, the history of, of yeast and brewing is is um, that kind of process of uh, uh, folks, find, brewers finding things that work and then um, putting that back out into the, the world for, for everyone to, to use in some way or whether they want to or not, it'll happen that way. Um, so you were going to mention that you then have another architecture, you know, um, you know, in terms of your brew house in order to uh, help this process? Yes. So um, as far as the souring goes, what we did is we retrofitted our boiler. We are now able to, we have steam piped to every single tank. So we don't, we don't sanitize our tanks. We sterilize every tank in between use. We sour in a tank, we run it dry back to the boil kettle so we can boil it and finish, you know, the deal with quick souring. Um, anyone listening should at least that, that basic process at that point in time, we just rinse it to get all the wort and, and beer out of there. Uh, and then we'll hit it with steam to sterilize it. That way we hit everything. We know it's killed and there's no risk of cross-contamination because you're nuking it. That has been the singular best thing for our blue ha brew house and, and cellar sanitation that we've ever done. Uh, I ferment lagers at the same tanks I ferment Brett in, and there's never been cross-contamination since we switched to steam sterilization. The other thing is fruit handling, which we're, we'll get into more, but you know, for certain beers, if we do, you know, 120 barrels, that's 12,000 pounds of fruit. That's 36 barrels of fruit thereabouts. Uh, so we bought and had commissioned a dedicated fruit cooker is what we call it. So I buy all raw unpasteurized purees, that basically just seeds removed, everything else is intact, which we can get to the seeds thing later too. Uh, and then since they haven't been cooked at all, they're contaminated. 
So what we do is gently bring it up to 155 degrees in our fruit cooker. Uh, so we're not trying to cook off any aromatics. We're pasteurizing it. And then we'll pump it into our tank uh, with our beer and let it ferment. So it was a combination of that fruit cooker, some special pumps, and the, the, the boiler modifications that have really allowed us to do what we're doing. That's wild. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that. But first, tired of the trial and error carbonation processes? Then look at Quantiperm's innovative automated carbonation systems for precise carbonation. These systems handle wide flow ranges to accommodate all your beer, wine, soda, or cider styles. You can even carbonate and directly send the products to a packaging line without tankage. Besides carbonation, Quantiperm offers robust and economical systems for nitrogenation and water deoxygenation. All of their systems have an easy-to-use graphical user interface with reports and graphs that you can pull up on your mobile device. Visit quantiperm.com for more information. Also, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. ABS wanted to do something fun for the craft beer industry and gave away an ABS Keg Viking Keg Washer live this past December 7th. Congratulations to Lazy Horse Brewing and Winery in Nebraska, who are the new proud owners of a keg viking. To make sure you're on the list for future giveaways, go to www.abs-commercial.com and click on the keg viking page. Fill out the contact form to stay in the know. So rather than using aseptic purees, which will be cooked and then packaged you know, by a packager, um, you all insist on un uncooked or you know, uh, puree. What? Uh, why the difference there? And uh, you know, are you splitting hairs when you decide to cook it yourself rather than having it you know you know pasteurized remotely and then uh, provided in an aseptic format? You know, it might be splitting hairs, um, but at least by bringing it in house, I can guarantee that I'm going to have more control over the product. And some fruits, like blueberries, for instance, actually benefit from a little bit higher of a cook because uh, they're such a light flavor fruit. When you take out the sugar, um, they're basically just like kind of tart and kind of fruity. So if you cook them a little bit, you develop some more flavor from it. You also are able to then uh, something like cucumber, for instance, which we've done plenty of cucumber beers. That is very vegetal. And if you get that too hot at all, it's going to taste vegetal. So for us you know, minimum pasteurization temp is like just over 135. So something like cucumber, we'll bring it in and we'll just barely heat it up above like 138 and we'll hold it there for about 25 minutes to guarantee a good kill. Uh, so by bringing that all in house, we have a lot better control. And a lot of times some fruits, you don't want them cooked hot. And like, I can't trust, like, don't get me wrong. Oregon fruit is extremely consistent and they make a great product. And I buy a shitload of their fruit when I'm doing pilot beers or if I can't find something, it's great. But some fruits, I just don't trust that they're going to get cooked too much. Peach, for instance, you're going to get like that canned baby food peach flavor. And I, I don't know how hot they do it. I don't know if maybe their operators had a bad day and they put it into the bag too hot and it cooled down slow and it overcooks. Uh, apricots is another one. A lot of stone fruits have issues uh, with this overcooking. And by removing that step and giving the control to us, I can re rely on my brewer's sense of taste to, to make it consistent every single time. 
That's new. Well, you know, it gives you that kind of control and lets you make the decisions around some of those things versus uh, letting a company that's making a consistent spec product for everyone for multiple markets, um, you know, and the different needs of different types of folks. They're you know making their decisions, and uh, that's exactly. interesting. Does it uh, does it uh, change the avenues that you uh, then access fruit with? Um, you know, because. Uh, you know, un, non-aseptic puree uh, is a little bit different. Although at that point, you know, it also kind of could open up, um, you know, different kinds of suppliers for this kind of product. It opens up a lot of fun avenues, but it takes work and time to build net, your network. Uh, it's very easy to log on to Oregon Fruit for fermentation.com and order your fruit and have it delivered in a week. It's It's really great and convenient. But if I want single varietal, 20,000 pounds of evergreen blackberry puree, you can't just buy that. Uh, you might be able to find someone who has it like IQF individually quick frozen or whole or fresh, but you can't just buy processed fruit like that because uh, it's a lot of work for the farmer. Uh, so I've built relationships with farmers and I have a really special relationship, which I'm actually not going to share on air with <laughs> one person in particular who is his job is sourcing fruit directly from farmers and getting things custom made into purees for us. And it's just been the best relationship for our business that I can, I can say we, we, the single best relationship we have from flyer supplier standpoint, he's planning us, he's getting custom uh, berry fields planted for us. If I want like a specific varietal or fruit, that's not normally made, he'll get it custom pureed up for us. It's to our exact specs. Uh, it's really, truly fantastic. Uh, and you see more of a sense of terroir, as well year to year much to some of our customers chagrins sometimes blackberry tastes different year over year because the growing conditions change and uh if you get blackberry from oregon fruit for instance they're going to do their best through blending to hit the same acidities and bricks contents and ph well for me buying direct from farmers uh it's going to be a little different and i think that's a hell of a lot of fun I love that you've got your own fruit puree guy, you know, <laughs> some guys have their barrel guy, you know, they're, he was out there sourcing their barrels and you've got your fruit puree guy that's, uh, that's on the groundwork. No, that's, it's the beautiful thing about brewing is, uh, you know, we, we find and talk to folks that, uh, are so deep in what they do that, that they have a person that no one else has. And, uh, you know, but it's, it's also fun to just see that kind of thing. Now let's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, we started talking about fruit, but I, I do want to kind of come back and talk about your kind of, uh, you know, basic souring, uh, you know, sure. your process, um, you know, are there any differences to the kind of grist bill that you've built? You obviously use your own, you know, your own lactose strain. Um, you know, I imagine you've got, uh, you know, a wheat component in, in this grist. Uh, is there, uh, is there anything, you know, special or interesting around the kind of base that you're building here? Yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, so we like to match our base to our fruit as best we can. Usually we'll start with two row because that's So you have different base beers then for different different beers in the kind of portfolio. Okay. Every beer basically has its own unique base. Um, wow. Some of them are close to each other and there's probably some overlap on a couple brands, but uh, you, we'll start with two row. But, you know, for instance, something like uh, strawberry, I really wanted to go for a strawberry jam type flavor. And to me, strawberry jam goes well with toast. So we pushed some Munich. We pushed a little bit of uh, biscuit malt in that. And, and not, no other of our beers get that treatment. 
Um, and we'll do the same thing. So, for instance, we do another beer that's a donut-inspired beer, which is 50-50 Vienna Munich. Um, and then we have others where the fruit is a lot more gentle of a fruit, like plum, for instance. And that beer will just be straight Pilsner because the, you don't want anything to compete with that plum flavor because it's so uh, delicate. So every, every beer deserves to be treated a, what you want that final flavor to be and then work backwards. And uh, uh, I mean, we take that all the way down to the, to the, you know, the water mineral content and whatnot. Where you're doing different water mineral adjustments depending on what the beer is? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, some beers do better. Sorry, depending on what the fruit is in yes. this yes. start beer. Not yeah. <laughs> okay, now we're getting into a level of granularity that is really fascinating. Um, <laughs> what, what? Talk to me about what are the, what some of those concerns are as you're thinking about the different fruits in these beers. Um, what would cause you to vary, um, you know, water chemistry and mineral content in there? So much in the same way that people like push chloride on a New England IPA for softness and, 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 and kind of perceived sweetness, or they push the sulfates for uh, a crisper, cleaner, drying bitterness. We'll do the same thing, but attack it uh, uh, based on tannin level of the fruit. So if your fruit's more tannic, like raspberries or blackberries even, pushing those sulfates up helps not only bring out the depth of complexity of that skin character in the fruit, in the beer, uh, it also prevents it from lingering on the palate like certain red wines can, which is for us desirable. Um, other fruits like peach, for instance, is very delicate and it doesn't have a lot of natural tannins in it. And if you want to enhance that uh, kind of natural, you know, sweet peach flavor, pushing your chlorides up much like you do with a New England IPA, uh, we found to be quite beneficial as well. So, um, yeah. Uh, that's a whole nother level of, uh, fun complexity for, uh, you know, for brewers brewing, uh, you know, these kinds of fruit beers, um, so quickly. And then, uh, you know, you also then mentioned you use a no oxygen process that you, you know, off offload wort, you know, you run it through a quick boil, then throw it into fermenter at 80 degrees, pitch lactoculture, do a souring. How, how long does that souring process typically take for you? For us, if we want to get as sour, our, our culture doesn't get as sour as some of the sour uh, lactocultures on the market because we're not, we weren't never selecting for acidity. So if I want to get to my lowest acidity uh, pre-boil, which is about three, 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 two on a good day, um, it takes about three days, maybe three and a half. Uh, if we want a little bit less, some of our beers around that three, five, three, six pH range, that usually takes us about two days. So we have a really nice schedule in the brew house currently where Mondays and Tuesdays is wort production. And then come Thursday and Friday, those are our boil days. And then Wednesday is actually our fruiting day. So we have every week's really nice. It's set. We make we make, we mess with grain on two days. We mess with all the fruit on one day and then we boil everything on the last day. So it's it's a really good rhythm we have. I, I have no idea how you produce that much beer, uh, that volume of beer every week with that kind of schedule. It sounds hectic. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and then your these fermenters are you you know are uh, you have ability to like heat the the jacketed fermenters to to hold them at the desired temperature. Um, no, I just keep the whole brewery hot as hell, so that way uh, it's like eighty five consistently year round in the brewery. And then the set point's 80, uh, and it, it'll just hold it. So it's, oh. it's, no, it's no issue. 
Well, that's convenient. So you don't have to heat glycol or anything uh, running through those for No. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, Octopi, um, if if you're familiar with them up in uh, sure, Wisconsin. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, they have so a couple dedicated souring tanks because they sour a little bit warmer than we do uh, that actually have uh, they're plumbed with hot glycol. Um, well, probably just hot water, actually, now mm. I'm thinking about it. But anyway, they want that. They invested a lot of infrastructure there for us. It was just we'll just take the ambient and we'll be fine. You know, yeah, right. If your lacto is working at 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you don't want to have to keep the ambient 100 degrees in your brew house. Your staff isn't going to like that no. for very long. Oh, God, no. <laughs> uh, so you then rack it back into the, the kettle, boil, um, kill off lacto. And uh, uh, then what, what does the next step of fermentation look like for you all? Yeah, so from there, uh, th and this is actually – uh, this is the one of the most important things you could possibly do is obviously with any beer is the yeast fermentation. You cannot mess this up, especially with a sour, because if you mess it up with sour, you're going to have low attenuation. You're going to have off flavors. You're going to have terrible flocculation uh, issues. There's a ton of issues that can pop up. So the key is after your boil and you go and you pump it to the fermenter and you're getting ready to pitch your yeast, you got to make sure that you are pitching a proper yeast culture. And for us, that means every single batch of beer gets a fresh pitch that only gets used once. So I buy a new prop every single time and I prop it up in pH that is the same pH as the beer is going to be when we start fermentation. So if it's going to be a lower pH beer, the pH of that starter needs to be 3.3 because uh, the beer, when it gets pitched, is going to be 3.3. Doing a normal starter at, you know, 4.6 or 4.4 four, four, and then pitching it into a 3.3 three, three environment, you're going to kill the viability of that yeast. Um, so we found that that is really important. Making sure you're using proper amounts of yeast nutrient, like hedging more towards wine levels of yeast nutrient versus uh, beer levels of yeast nutrient. And then the final thing is touching up with zinc. Uh, don't overdo it because that can also cause yeast health damage. But lactobacillus is a zinc heavy microbe. So you want to make sure you add like half the recommended dose of your zinc prior to lactobacillus fermentation. And then after lactobacillus fermentation, you want to add that second half of the recommended dose, which is one gram per 10 hectoliters. So half a gram per 10 hectoliters before you start souring half a gram after souring to replenish that zinc that the, the lacto used up. Um, and we found that that for us makes fermentation quick. Uh, we use a lot of Vike yeast because it's fantastic and I love it. Uh, and it's clean and it's quick um, and it attenuates really well. Um, so and after pitching and fermentation's going three to five days into fermentation, then we'll get our fruit onto the beer uh, from the prior week's production. So that's our process. Uh, thought being too with the later addition of fruit is that you're adding your fruit after primary has gotten done, so your yeast is still really active and healthy. You're lowering the chances of just having an out of control primary fermentation and blowing off, uh, you know, fruit flavor or aromatics. And you're able to push the ABV a little bit higher, much like, you know, standard high grav brewing techniques where, you know, you step nutrient additions, step sugar additions by stepping that, that fruit addition, which is going to be a shitload of fructose and glucose and these simpler sugars, you're allowing the yeast to attenuate as much as it can on some of the bigger, uh, you know, maltose, maltotriose, shit like that. 
uh, and then it can get back to the the easy stuff for its final step in cleanup. Um, I feel like that no, was just a lot spoil, of information. Right, right. No, you just, <laughs> yeah, it's, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. You're not giving it easy stuff to eat so then it doesn't get lazy and stop doing its job exactly. and uh, not want to eat the harder stuff. Sure, sure. I want to talk a little bit about um, then that fruit addition process. But before we do that, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep-dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Subscribers are the first to see every new issue, including our annual Best in Beer issue that's out now, and our new issue 43 that'll be out shortly. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. Um, so yeah, Brett, let's talk about that process. Um, once you, you, know, uh, you start adding fruit at what you were saying about five, six days in, um, after primary fermentation is finished in order to uh, yeah, uh, just make sure that you, things don't get out of control there. Um, but what is, what is exactly, what does that fruit, uh, process, uh, uh, of addition look like? Yes. So for us, it depends on the fruit, uh, and the fruit product that it is, but largely if it's a, a whole fruit puree, which basically means a fruit that is everything that is a part of that fruit minus the seeds. Um, and the seeds are an issue, which again, we'll talk about later. Uh, <laughs> that, that all goes in day three plus or minus from pitching two days. Um, and what we'll do is we'll get all these drums of our raw unpasteurized fruit. We'll pump it into our boil kettle or our fruit cooker is what I should say. We'll pump it into our fruit cooker. We slowly raise it up to about 155, depending on the fruit, as we talked about earlier. And then from there, we pump it in through a shell and uh, coil heat exchanger because it can handle a little bit thicker stuff, which is important to know, better than a plate and frame. If you're pumping you know, fruit pulp and skin and matter and all this stuff through a, a, and print, a plate and frame, you're gonna have some issues potentially. So through a shell and coil and into our fermenter, um, and at that point in time, if we're using like a Vike yeast, we'll bump the temperature up a little bit, let it free rise up and let it ferment out dry. Um, we also use bentonite, uh, that way we can get this fruit pulp to kind of drop and condensate a little or condense a little bit better. And there's a couple enzymes that we pulled over from the wine industry that we use as well. So Scott labs, uh, I don't know if they're a sponsor or not, but, uh, I recommend them too. We, we buy from. They make something called uh, Pect5, which is a pectinase uh, blend, and HC enzyme blend, which is also like a cellulase and uh, hemocellulase blend. And it's all designed for increasing, um, if you are filtering, filterability, increasing color and juice yields, and also making it so that you get the best extract and flocculation as possible. And a combination of all those three things together has allowed us to get the pulp and the fruit and the juice and the sugar and the flavor into the beer and then have it settle and separate out so our beer isn't too thick. Now, if you're going for a very thick beer, which <laughs> is its own other thing, you know, that's, um, you know, you might want all of that pulp in there. But generally, the wider audience that is not just the beer fanatics, they don't want thick beer. Because it's really weird if you think about it. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. So 
Uh, and having that, all of that other matter can certainly impact things like shelf stability, you know, and, you know, longevity. And, the, and you're, you put a lot of beer out into distribution and need for it to perform yes. out there over a longer amount of time. And so it certainly makes sense to try to make sure that the product going out there has that kind of stability to it. And we just bought a centrifuge, too, to increase that and also increase our yield. So I'm, I'm super stoked about that. No more... Uh... No more lost waste at the bottom where it gets all sloppy. So that's I'm pretty excited. That has to be a you know, a huge thing with the vast large amounts of fruit that you uh, you tend to use. Um, you know, without a centrifuge, there's a significant amount of loss there. Same way that hazy New England IPA brewers putting eight pounds of hops per barrel. Yes. You know, are, are losing so much to absorption and then gain <laughs> gain a lot of that back when they you know move to centrifuges. They start to pay for themselves that way. It's insane. I would never do this again without starting with one. It was a fool's errand to do what we're doing without a centrifuge. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, in terms of now fruit to fruit, it's going to vary a little bit, but um, what are your kind of, you know, how much fruit do you find yourself using? Um, and maybe we talk about a couple of different fruits sure. here in oh, order yeah. to, and, and um, you know, in addition to these enzymes, are there other ways that, um, you know, that you kind of maximize the impact of some of these fruits? Okay. Yes. Good question. Okay. So something like citrus, you don't want to use necessarily whole fruit you don't want to necessarily use the juice of an orange you want just that zest the pith is bitter you don't like people don't generally like bitter ipas notwithstanding uh people generally don't like the flavor of orange juice mixed with bitter either which can be a problem if you're trying to do like an orangey ipa i personally think like orange juice ipas are some of the grossest things i've ever had because it's like uh, brushing your teeth and then drinking orange juice afterwards or like orange juice and coffee. It just doesn't mesh. I don't get it. That aside, uh, you know, you want the zest. And if you're using the zest, you don't need to use nearly as much. Uh, you can get away with rates as low as like a pound per barrel if you want like an intense flavor. If you're talking something like um, peach or strawberry, for instance, those are a little bit more delicate flavors. You want to use a little bit more. If you want over-the-top peach flavor without using in, uh, uh, extracts or concentrates or flavorings, you're gonna you're talking like three pounds per gallon, a significant amount. Uh, that and that's gonna be like peach. Uh, if you're looking for something that is like raspberry, which is way more loud, but you still want it to be basically raspberry first, beer second. Uh, you're talking like two and a half pounds per gallon or so. Um, and price factors in too, which thankfully raspberries are loud, but they're also more expensive. So you can use less. So it kind of offsets something like blueberry, which is very soft, especially after you take out all the sugar where you need to use more, but blueberry is significantly cheaper. I'm paying about 80 cents a pound for blueberry. I'm paying a dollar 35 a pound for raspberry. So there's this big difference that's balanced. And thankfully they kind of balance each other out nicely. Um, now, the other thing I do want to talk about, which we don't do, but something you could do is use a little bit less fruit and then buy some flavorings and top up the high notes, i.e. the aroma. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't do it. I'll never do it. But it's perfectly fine for breweries to do that, especially if you're being transparent on your label and saying, hey, we use fruit. We also use flavoring. We think this makes a superior product. Great. I fucking love that. That's fantastic. Uh, so that's an option too. And that can save you some money. You can still get the, the benefit of using the fruit because, man, you've seen blackberry beers. They're beautiful. 
but blackberry doesn't have a ton of aroma going on. So if you use blackberry flavor, you touch it up with a little bit of flavoring, and then all of a sudden, you know, on the cheap or cheaper, you can make this really whole product that uh, otherwise would be hella expensive. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned seeds earlier. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, and the impact of seeds. And then I also want to talk about strawberries and blueberries in particular, because uh, there's they are delicate fruits. And I'm curious about how you, you know, um, get good results out of those in particular. But but you know what what is your issue with seeds? Uh, you brought it up twice now, and uh, I feel like we should. I, th- I feel like God we should talk about seeds. it. <laughs> Aside from like, what did seeds ever do to you? Come on, well, they, they get into everything. Like <laughs> raspberry seeds, they're tiny. They get everywhere. So seeds are really cool, and also terrible and wonderful, and just this oh, this whole thing. So uh, something like a cherry seed has a ton of almond flavor in that pit. And if you can get the cherry pit flavor into it, which is really hard to do on a 120 barrel scale, but a lot easier to do on the barrel age scale, that's great. Pull that pit flavor out, go for it, add some depth to it. But processing wise, it's a nightmare. Raspberries, especially, they add like that, like you can, if you think about it, like you can taste a raspberry seed in your mind's eye. Think about like seeded raspberry jelly and you can kind of taste that tannic, uh, depth and complexity that it adds. It's really nice. The issue being raspberry seeds are tiny and they're so hard to get out. And with us out not having a centrifuge nightmare. Now you go all the way to the other end where strawberry seeds come in. Now those things are terrible. They're nightmare fuel for beer quality. Strawberry seeds add vinyl character to your beer and if you've ever had a barrel-aged sour beer made with strawberries that was whole fruit and it smelled like Hulk hands, it's because it had <laughs> seeds in it. And that shit, without fail, will put off a vinyl off flavor. It's, it, it took us forever to figure it out because we didn't have any issues when we bought seeded or seedless puree and we made a strawberry beer on the large scale. We did some whole fruit stuff on the barrel-aged scale, just Hulk hands, Hulk hands, Hulk hands. Like, why does this smell terrible? What we eventually found out is that if it does have seeds in it and you cook it, i.e. like make a compote like you would like strawberry uh, like pie filling, it removes that precursor that would lead to the vinyl off flavors. So this really weird thing happened just by coincidence. We got lucky early on by buying seedless strawberry puree and it didn't make a vinyl mess. We got unlucky with the barrel age program where it was a vinyl mess for like three years in a row. And eventually we're like, what the hell is it? And we finally decided that, like, let's just try cooking these whole fruits. And it worked. And it made a, it made a big difference. Uh, so it's not worth the effort anymore on the barrel-aged scale to cook every batch of fruit. So we don't do a strawberry barrel-aged beer. But now we know that certain, certain seeds throw off characteristics or have compounds in them that lead to, uh, uh, through biotransformation, terrible off flavors. So seeds are really interesting. They're, they're, they can add wonderful depth sometimes. Sometimes they're just a pain in the ass to deal with from a process standpoint when you're scaling up. And sometimes they can just ruin your beer. And sometimes you can just cook it out. That's, yeah. uh, that's, an, an, uh, that's kind of an interesting strategy. I hadn't really thought about that. It took us four years to figure it out. Like, oh, my God. Like, I, just, <laughs> I feel so good about that. Like, yeah. Like, it, yeah. Anyway. And I love that Hulk hands is your <laughs> mental association for that vinyl, you know, character. That it's <laughs> so, somehow, you know, the the 
Yeah. <laughs> you know that smell, right? You can, oh, you can, uh, yeah, absolutely. You can smell and it. it could be pool toy or, you know, there's all sorts of other, uh, um, you know, analogies that you can make to yes. it. But, but whole cans, uh, that's yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a sideline way, you, you answered my other question, which is, uh, you know, talking about how to get good results out of strawberry and avoid that, that kind of uh, vinyl plasticky phenol character that, um, that can tend to destroy those strawberry beers. Um, blueberries, similar kind of thing. They're, they're subtle, but once you start, you know, once you re-ferment out blueberries, they seem to become more kind of tannic and woody than they are what people associate with, you know, that kind of sweetness in blueberries. How do you, you know, kind of accommodate that within, uh, within the beer? Man. So largely we don't brew blueberry beers on their own because of that, because, there's a customer expectation around blueberry that it's going to be sweet and tart and and mildly fruity. Well, like you were saying, it, they, they're more woodsy, which is wonderful, but not what customers want. So what we found helps is if you cook the blueberries. And what we'll do is we'll bring them up to almost near boil if we're doing something on the larger scale. And we'll cook them for a couple hours to really get some of those malleard reactions and deeper flavors to develop. And... Uh, it, it really works out well, but it's a different product than what a fresh blueberry would be. There's also, which I don't know, I think my business partner, Scotty, was talking to you, but what I found works really well is, so, you know, people freeze dry fruits. And the cool thing about freeze drying fruits is, is you take out all the water, but they still taste like fresh fruit. So now think of this, you got dried fruit, that has a lot of sugar in it. Think of the other thing brewers use that is dried and has a lot of sugar in it. Grain. Now you can make a high ABV beer just using grain. Well, guess what? If you take freeze dried fruits and add some water to it and pull out all that sugar, you can make a high ABV beer with freeze dried fruits that you wouldn't be otherwise because you're not watering it down with all the water that's naturally found in fruit. So we're able to make fruit beers that are like 16% alcohol just by using freeze-dried. Now, the caveat here is that it's hella expensive. We're talking like $25 a pound, and you need to use like a, a, a pound per gallon to really get like to do what we're doing. But by doing that, I've ma we've made the most true blueberry-tasting beer I've ever had in my entire life, and I couldn't be more excited to brew that beer on the large scale now that we figured it out on the fall scale th this coming year. I'm, I'm This freeze-dried world is going to just... It's going to be big for us. I'm so excited. So uh, I know what you're talking about, but I don't know that it was you just completely explained it to people. You have de are de developing more beers using freeze-dried fruit in order to – and also pushing into kind of higher ABV realms with that kind of thing. Now, you know, there's – the first question that comes to mind is TTB. You know, the you know, U.S. TTB you know, with your brewing license is going to – demand that 51% of your fermentables are, are coming out of, of uh, you know, malt grain and not coming out of fruit. Um, otherwise, then it gets classified as wine if it's mm -hmm. coming out of a fruit side. Um, how do you how do you balance that equation, especially as, if, as you're talking about, you're making a 16%, you know, fruited sour beer here? Well, it's 8.1% beer and 97.9% .9 fruit. <laughs> That's basically what it comes down to. 
uh, we, you know, you can just, you can kind of fudge it. If you use Beersmith, if anyone's listening, to use Beersmith, just take grain and change the, uh, the starting, uh, the, the potential, the sugar potential, and just change it to whatever the sugar potential is for your fruit, which you'll be able to get in for freeze dried fruit off the spec sheet. So that's all I do. And then it's just a simple matter of calculations. Um, and it's, it's, you know, that's, you're right. You, you can't go more than 50%, uh, fermentable from the fruit. Uh, but you can go up to 49%. <laughs> pushing, pushing that limit. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, from a, a consumer perspective, that's an interesting one to see beer. And, and I, I remember, uh, tasting one of yours this past year, which was, oh, maybe a 12 or 13% raspberry beer. And I remember looking at it and thinking, uh, my God, that that's a you know, a category apart from, you know, most of the other beers that we're tasting it with, because just, you know, that's just not really a, a category that people think about of uh, kettle soured, mm. quick soured beers that are in that kind of ABV range. Um, but on the flip side, like people consume wine in that, yeah, that ABV, ABV range all the time. Exactly. Exactly. Then that, that's kind of how we, we actually pull a, a lot of processes from, from the winemaking, even to get up to like that 10, 12%. You, you know, we have to capitalize our beers, which is fancy wine speak for adding, you know, fucking table sugar. Like it's <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. And you can fancy it up for the customer and they eat that shit up. You know, you call it capitalizing. You use French terms. You use the German terms. It, really, it's basic stuff. But like people like that because it shows, you know, what you're talking about and doing. And it also highlights to me that it's not inherently wrong to do something like that. As long as you're being honest about it and, 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 you know, you're doing it to make better product, not doing it to cheapen your product. Sure. You try to make it um, palatable and make it something that people are going to enjoy drinking. Since we're talking about winemaking processes, you know, another thing that, um, you know, winemakers spend a lot of time doing is understanding the, you know, acid makeup of their beers. And as you're starting to talk about so much heavy fruit additions, you also start introducing other acid components, you know, into beers with that kind of fruit. You know, you're either talking about citric acid, you can be talking about malic acid. And so then you're talking about a blend of different acids in addition to the lactic acid that you've, uh, you know, intentionally added to the beer. Um, talk to me a little bit about how, you know, you work with those varying acids in order to understand the way that all of them build a, a perceptible hole of acidity for uh, for somebody drinking it. Oh, that's a that's a wonderful question. Um, so acidity, man, it's so much fun. There's and there's a difference I think that the the brewer needs to understand because their customer isn't going to understand. There's a difference between actual acidity and perceived acidity. So with that in mind. Uh, you know, we are in the realm of lactic acid, which I think is a really good neutral acid. It's not too soft. It's not too in your face. It's just good in the middle. Uh, it's it, it lends itself well to basically anything. We don't add any acids to our beers. That's another good technique that you could do um, on the back end, much like adjusting um high notes with a flavoring, uh, topping up your beer, so to speak, that's fine. Uh, and if you are doing that and it's just, and if you're not, it's good to consider something like citric or malic is going to be a lot more candy. Like most of your sour candies out there are made from citric acid, like your sour patch kids or sour kittles, skittles, 
you're more like extreme sours might be a lot more malic or higher on even tartaric acid, which is more prominent in wine grapes usually. Uh, so when you're doing that, it's important to consider not only the type of acid the fruit's bringing to the table, because that's going to bring that's going to affect the overall balance, but how much. So something like passion fruit is over the top sour. It is so goddamn in your face with acidity that you have to be careful that you don't overdo it or you're going to strip an animal off your teeth. Um, there was a, a brewery here local to us in Cincinnati that did one three years back now, I think, that overdid it on the uh, the passion fruit. And some people do love the, 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 the insane acidity, but I was not a big fan. And they changed it the following year because of that. And I, I think it was, a, a, it was a hard lesson learned from them, but it's important for you to consider like, okay, I want to make a, a tropical fruit beer and I want it to have passion fruit and I want it to have pineapple and I want it to have guava. Well, right off the rip, you need to know Passion fruit, if you're going over, like, I usually do, like, 500 pounds per uh, 120 barrels if I want a noticeable flavor but not be overly aggressive. If you're going much over that, you better dial back on that pineapple because pineapple is high acidity as well. So you may want to lean more on guava, which is a little bit more neutral. So it's just really important to consider that acid base. Or if you're using something that's really soft and you want to punch it up, like plum, for instance, or peach, you know, peach would be a great thing to do if you don't want to use flavorings for whatever reason, but you're okay adding acids on the back end. Man, if you make a peach beer and punch that up with a little bit of citric on the back end, you're going to really push that peach rings type flavor. And a lot more people might find that palatable uh, without being like, oh man, this is so sour from the citric. Well, it's like, oh no, this is great. This is so candy like, but it's still not sweet. It's just perceived that way because of the citric. So I, I, I don't think I actually said anything really terribly concrete, but it, like, you were, <laughs> like you were saying, it's really important to consider the acid blend because it is going to have a huge impact on the final product. Yeah, the other thing uh, that you, you're hinting at right there, you know, is that perception of sweetness, which, you know, given that you're re-fermenting these, these fruits out and they are, you know, relatively dry, um, that little bit, you, you know, you did mention, uh, you know, by cooking, creating some uh, more complex sugars and some Maillard reactions, you know, that you're potentially leaving some unfermentable, you know, sugars in there that will help provide some of that um, impression of sweetness. Uh, are there other, you know, kind of tools that you use to, um, to increase that perception of sweetness so that, you know, it helps uh, balance out that acidity? Yeah, I think you know the answer to this too, oh. but it's <laughs> <laughs> you, you may have talked to me about this before for a brewer's perspective in the magazine. <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the simple answer is vanilla. It's great and it doesn't take a lot. And I know some brewers are gonna be incredulous, but I'm telling you right now, thirty grams per thousand gallons, so thirty barrels ish, makes a huge difference. Like it it doesn't taste like vanilla, but it adds this this rounding out and softening and perception of sweetness. Now, modern day trends, too, are kind of shifting a little bit and people are getting more into these alternative uh, sweeteners and sugars and stuff. And I've actually just started mucking around a little bit on the, like the tabletop scale. But like there's options with like people are getting into monk fruit, which basically tastes like sweet and low, but it's natural. Uh, there's erythritol. There's uh, oh, stevia. Yes, yeah, st stevia. stevia. Uh, yeah, there's all these polyols that you could get and mess around with, too that will add sweetness without actually adding calories or like over the top, like syrupiness. There's also the, like, you know, everyone's favorite milk sugar, lactose. Uh, but, um, 
the yeah perceived sweetness perceived acidity it's 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 kind of crazy you put things in people's minds with your label and your artwork and the the use of certain ingredients and you can really kind of shift the narrative uh one direction or another it's you know god bless beer drinkers but man you know it, depending on what you do you could you could you can really manipulate the situation to your advantage. So wait, what are you saying there? You're saying that the way that you write a description on the label or on the untapped uh, 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 you know, description of your beer is going to impact the way that people perceive sweetness and acidity in the beer itself? Oh, a thousand percent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now that's fascinating. Let's talk about that. No, you know, and well... <laughs> I mean, you know, taste happens in your mind, you know, that, you know, it's certainly the sensors on your, uh, in your, your tongue are, and the aroma percept, you know, receptors in your nasal cavity are creating a sense that it's sending to your brain, but it's your brain that's processing that and putting it all together. And so, you know, that same brain is accepting inputs, visual inputs, you know, uh, you know, uh, taste and aroma inputs, but it's also accepting inputs in terms of expectation and, uh, um, you know, I said visual and, and others, and all of those feed into, you know, what that ultimate perception ends up being. Um, but it's fascinating to hear you say that. I've actually said that before to people that uh, <laughs> the the power of suggestion, you know, in the way that they write and describe their beer um, is insanely more powerful than anyone real generally gives it credit. But it's interesting to hear you say it from a brewery perspective. Oh, it's hugely important. And like most brewers, you know, I have an obsession with checking untapped uh, every morning, which I definitely shouldn't. But even just, you know, anecdotally speaking, we made this beer called uh, the, the Tumi, and it was made with Kaja, which is a, um, a type of wild plum from the Amazon. And to me, you know, it had notes of tomato, like tomato leaves and underripe, like yellowish tomatoes. But it also had huge notes of like banana daiquiri and just like tropical fruit drinks that you'd have on vacation. So I took this with the beer. I pulled some out of the, 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 the bright and I took it over to a family get together. This was a couple of years ago. And I was there with my business partner and he he pitches this beer because I was talking to him about like the tomato aspect of it. And he leads with tomato to all of our family. And no one fucking liked the beer. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. Because they, they couldn't get tomato out of their right. head. Well, the next time we took this beer and pitched it again, we didn't mention tomato at all. And guess what? It ended up being one of our best beers uh, on Untapped as far as is rated. And it was draft only, which is also a knock on Untapped. And granted, Untapped's not the be all and all. We don't need to get in all that. But the fact that like this beer was so highly liked but on the first people we talked it to, we just pitched it a little bit wrong. That highlights, just like you were saying, the importance of setting the right stage for, for people's flavor experience. That suggestion is is so powerful. And, and you're right. I, I love to do that experiment, look at a brewery that's describing a beer one way, and then look at people's untapped comments. And, uh, you know, more often than not, then you know, the judgments start you know running around a binary access, ba or access based on what that expectation is oh i really taste this oh i don't taste enough of this oh yes. you know and so there you set a singular expectation of it has this and then people's judgments aren't well whatever that is it actually tastes like this no one ever says that it is simply <laughs> a 
oh yeah, I really get that. Or no, I don't get it. I don't get a lot of that. And, you know, and so it becomes, you, you create an argument, but you create a very limited argument around that. I mean, we, you know, when we are judging beer, we always go back and forth on that. Do you talk about the special ingredients? Um, and some of our judges just love to go into it blind. Don't tell me, I want to describe what I'm tasting. And, uh, it may not be what the fruit is and that special ingredient that a brewer puts on it, but it's, you know, it is also more interesting to see how it is actually conveyed and what, you know, that is when there is nothing setting an expectation for that, because you're right, you know, when you tell people what it's going to be, then they're, it all gets centered around or most tasters, you know, now yes. we'll, we'll, you know, get a, I'll get a fruit and it'll taste like, I understand that that's what's in it. This is what it actually tastes like, you know, to <laughs> me. And, and, you know, we can kind of create that, you know, you know we've been doing it long enough. You can kind of, you know, uh, work that kind of way, but that is, that is really interesting that, um, that you can massage. I don't want to call it manipulate. Cause that sounds so, you know, it's not e- a bad word. Evil and, uh, <laughs> you, know, you can condition the, the kind of response for that kind of thing. Um, now having said that, like, if you don't, if, if you set up the expectation and you don't fulfill it, then, then also there's a this problem. huge, you know, consumer letdown from that perspective. Yeah, expectation management is is huge. Both you're right; it goes both ways. And uh, for us, uh, so we make this one product, uh, which I actually we were talking about earlier. But Operation Plowshare it was originally created five years ago as a jelly donut beer. Well, what fruit beers are and have become in the main the craft beer main the craft beer consumer mainstream is vastly different than it was five years ago. Sweet beers are very very popular right now and we don't make any sweet beers so our donut beer that was originally a donut beer was not sweet but it had notes of the donut and it had no, the filling and all that good stuff well what we found is over time as sweet beers become more popular especially sweet or fruit beers people have started rebelling against the expectation that we are setting that they're thinking this beer is going to be sweet because there's so many other breweries out there saying doing sweet donut beers so this year we actually rebranded it as just a blackberry midwest fruit tart dropped the donut dropped the donut story changed the artwork didn't change the recipe a lick so much better received insane like but you're right we our expectation was pushing it too far the other way we were saying it's something that people have grown accustomed to not so we we backpedaled that a little bit on that on that messaging because you know the the, the landscape changed and it and it and it worked in our favor that's really interesting. And, and uh, you know, I think from this perspective, I try not to be not, not to take a judgmental approach to consumers tasting this, that, um, you know, people approach these beers from a whole wide range of different backgrounds and contexts. And, you know, as a brewer, there's always that balance between, you know, um, you know making what you want to make and, and adhering to your creative vision and making what consumers want to to drink and finding the kind of nexus between those two things because i think there there has to be some nexus there uh it can't be all one thing it can't all be the other thing if it's you know simply fan service then you know uh any kind of you know vision or structure you know falls apart and your brewery just ends up you know going after pop hits and you know you yeah, you know, there's you no might, sustainability there. It's there's you're right. There's not a core and a vision that's driving it. You know, but on the other side, like if you're not making beer that people want to drink, then you're just not going to be in business for very long either. And, and so you know, there has to be that kind of 
uh, you know, nexus between those two things. But people also want to feel like, you know, they can participate in that experience and they want to feel like, you know, that, um, and they want to feel the positivity of that validation. And so, um, you know, it's a hard thing. And I think that's one thing that makes beer more interesting than wine. Like, you know, well, I shouldn't say that. I love wine, <laughs> but w wine is a more difficult um, subject for most people to dive deep into because the differences are so subtle. And beer, in you know, especially fruit forward beer, does not necessarily dive into that kind of minutia. Um, but people God, want can you imagine if we did? Wouldn't that be great? That would be interesting. <laughs> we can just dissect different blackberry varietals on like a, a daily basis on what works best with Cezanne versus what works best with lager. Man, I would love that. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, it's it, it's like you know, uh, senior or uh, sorry, uh, you know, grad students discussing the finer points of uh, you know philosophical points. Like, there's right. a value to that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's uh, you know, but most that's not where most people are going to be. It's intimidating. So, sure, um, you know, but people want to feel like they can participate in it and that it's accessible to them and they can, you know, I, I always describe it as like, you know, customers want to find their own win, you know, they want to find, Oh yeah, yeah, I totally get that. And they, you know, and, and that kind of gives them a feeling of engaging with it. And, uh, and that's something that beer certainly at this phase in beers development makes possible for people. Now I well don't said. think, I mean, uh, I think where we are with beer right now is not where we're going to be in 10 years and it's not where we're going to be in 20 years. It's where it is right now. And so, um, I think it's also, gosh, I, I'm just soapboxing on this one now. Uh, but I think that a lot of people judge, a lot of people judge beer where it is, where it is now, you know, but it's not, this is not the end point. This is not, you know, the maturity point, even, you know, wine, California wine is, you know, 150 years in French wine is, many hundreds of years, you know, older than that. Um, it's cool to see the wine industry kind of going through its own simplification process right now. A lot of these new age winemakers, even if they're not natural winemakers, they, they're, they're keeping things a little bit simpler. They're reducing the, the, the knowledge input required. You don't need to know six different varietals and what does the state grown mean or what does this hillside mean or what is this bullshit bullshit. They're just making good wines fairly accessible they're putting them in like less intimidating packaging i'm sure you've seen a lot of like the pet gnats popping up and stuff like man that's what gets me excited is that wine's taking a page out of beer's book right now and that's that's really cool yeah yeah that there are folks at a price point who want to be engaged you know and different points in their lives you know the um enthusiasts around these beverages in their 20s and 30s aren't spending a hundred dollars a bottle on uh you know uh bordeaux or you know your your some of your more expensive cabs like you know but they are interested and they love to taste and they want to experience and uh you know it's such an interesting piece for for both wine but and i think you're right i think wine is has learned from beer that there are that there is that kind of consumer that wants to get something out of it um but that's a whole you know gosh we got off on a, on a nice little tangent there um What's uh, what's big on the horizon for you? Are you obviously you mentioned freeze dried fruit beers, and uh, you've got some new products coming out in that kind of um, standpoint. But are there other er era elements of innovation that you are really excited about right now? 
Uh, you know, that's the big thing. Uh, it's been a year and a half now of kind of just mucking around and figuring things out to, that we got to the point where we feel comfortable buying $50,000 worth of fruit for a 60 barrel batch, Oof. which is just stupid money. Uh, yeah. but I, we feel good about making that investment now. So I'm so excited about those, uh, the, the freeze dried fruit beers. Um, we've also doing a line of wine beer hybrids where we call brute fruit tarts. Uh, we pull a lot of techniques from the, um, natural wine world for that, uh, stoked on those. We kind of pumped the brakes a little bit with the pandemic on that product line. So we could keep our core products in stock. Uh, we're going to re up our investment on that. Uh, as far as like our branding and sales, uh, investment this coming year, super stoked on that. And then other than that, in the deep horizon, uh, we got some funky stuff coming one thing i i don't feel comfortable quite talking about yet but you know we'll see in another year uh we're also working i mean i'd be a fool to say i'm not at least messing around with with seltzers uh so you know we're 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 looking at some stuff right now where we're using our pre-boil souring process on a seltzer base and seeing if we can't infuse that urban artifact flavor and what we're known for into a seltzer and, and kind of put our own spin on that market and stand out there as well. So I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, but if it does, it'll be 2022, uh, maybe some, you know, a couple hundred barrel batches here this year. But yeah, that's that's that, that's the horizon. What uh, what's the ultimate goal for Urban Artifact, you know, for uh, for you and your partner when uh, what does success look like and when will you know that you've achieved it? sustainability 100 percent. i don't know what it is about capitalism where you have to grow 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 and if you're not growing you're dying i kind of think that's horseshit i want to get to a point where i'm paying all of my brewers wages where they feel comfortable that they don't ever have to leave they feel comfortable where they don't have to necessarily move up the the you know the promotion ladder so to speak where they can buy homes they can have families uh they have health insurance they're taken care of and they're just really doing their best creative life at the brewery they're they're being them best selves and and we're all kind of doing this and and showing that capitalism can be sustainable and it, it can be a thing where it isn't just trickle down horse shit it can be we all rise up together and you know one thing that i think a lot of corporations and shit uh you know overlook and small business owners certainly don't well they can but a lot don't is that at the end of the day, I'm going to get mine when I sell my business, when I retire. So like, I don't need to make 10 X the salary that our lowest paid employee makes. That's kind of shitty. So by me knowing that I'm going to be protected in the end and I can see, I mean, you know, there's a thousand different ways that the government has made it. So business owners can be filthy rich by the time they retire. So if I just, keep doing what I'm doing and invest in the company and invest in the employees, we are going to be sustainable, not only from a capitalist standpoint, but from our beer standpoint. And I hope that, you know, if I'm dead and gone 300 years from now, people can look back at me and be like, just like Arthur Guinness, you know, and say, that guy was a prick, but he made great beer and he took care of his people. And, you know, he could have done a lot of different things. And he bought fruit from South Africa. And that idiot should have known that, like, obviously slave labor was involved in that guava he bought. Well, like, yeah, you're right. But I'm doing the best I can. Uh, and so I, I just want that from I just want that for everybody. I just want everybody to be able to do the best they can 
and be as good as they can in the society and culture in which we all live. Uh, hopefully that wasn't too weird. People will remember how you treated them long after they forget how something <laughs> tastes. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully say so I'm just an asshole for most people, which, you know, I get it. I'm brusque and I speak my mind. So like, you know, whatever. If you don't know me and you think I'm a dick, you know, whatever. Go fuck yourself. I think you are too. But <laughs> as we sit down and have a beer, you know, that comes, there's, it comes to learning and the understanding. Um, anyway. Well, I didn't ask you to be on this podcast because we were timid and we're afraid to, to share your opinions. That's uh, that's definitely uh, uh, for sure. Chanty um, Chillers is your premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Get haze for days with Carrie Biohaze available from BSG. Quantiperm's innovative systems offer precise carbonation. ABS Commercial gave away a Keg Viking Keg Washer and sign up at abs-commercial.com for future chances. Subscribe now to Craft Beer and Brewing to support this very podcast. Um, so, Brett, if people want to learn more about Urban Artifact, uh, whether it's uh, in the digital realm or whether it's in real life, uh, where do they find you guys? We're in Cincinnati, Ohio. So come check out our tap room. We're carry out only right now during the pandemic. Uh, you can also hit us up on our website, artifactbeer.com, or you can buy our beer online. We ship to currently 10 states, artifactmerch.com. And if you're a music aficionado, which we didn't get to and we don't need to get into, but we have our own radio station, 91.7 FM HD2 WVXU in Cincinnati. You can check us out there if you're local or go to radioartifact.com. We play nothing but wonderful indie music. We also have albums you can download and all this other wonderful fun stuff. So tons of shit. Check us out. Just Google Urban Artifact or Radio Artifact and you'll find us. Now you're speaking my language. Brad, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Uh, cheers. Thank you. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. 